When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. starcitygames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit starcitygames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. We are live here in Las Vegas at the Marriott. That is our insanely large studio audience. It just gave us a huge standing ovation. You guys can't see that at home. And so not joining me on the line this week, but sitting next to me here, I've got Ethan Sachs. Ethan, what are you thinking of Vegas so far? Dude, it's been awesome so far. So we got in yesterday morning, and as luck would have it, Ben and I were on the same connecting flight in Phoenix. It was fate. Yeah, fate had us come into Vegas together, got a little cab to our Airbnb, got some drafts in, got my uh, Tuppy Cube. Had its maiden voyage yesterday with the folks at our Airbnb, and we also drafted some Hour of Devastation last night. It's pretty awesome. I'm excited. I'm also excited to not be playing in the main event. I am <laughs> thrilled to not be playing in the main event. My record so far in the house is one and three, so I need to, I need to step it up a little bit. Little bit. <laughs> yeah, we were drafting my cube yesterday, and I sort of gave like an overview of like what the archetypes were, and you were like, and halfway through pack one, you're like, I should have listened <laughs> to what you said about the archetypes because it's not going well. <laughs> blue, blue, white was blink tokens and I had a balance and I was trying to do some artifact ramp stuff and it was it was not going my way. Yeah, sorry about that. All right. So we've got a live show today. We've got some Q&A stuff from the folks here. We've got the Q&A stuff from some folks on Twitter and Discord. We're going to get into all that. I am talking with my hands as promised. Um, and, but before we get into any of that, we got to talk about some business stuff. First things first, the Patreon, we would not be here today without the support from the folks here who are in discord who are supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash lords of limited where you can get back to the show if you so choose you get access to that discord 24 7 limited tech support get access to what's the play what's the build help me with my arena draft all that good stuff there um get access to picking ben's brain my brain all the fine folks in there and uh a lot of really good resources there for prep for these big gps you know i think we have a lot of folks preparing for the main event tomorrow a lot of folks here going to the main event tomorrow. So uh, all that good stuff in the Discord. And we, of course, want to welcome each and every new member of our Patreon the week that they join. So this week, we're going to be welcoming Joshua, Lucas, Historius, Tiger, Peter, Leonard, William, Sean, Daniel, Alexander, and Blorkbop. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Everybody that chooses to support us on Patreon, absolutely awesome. Really, really appreciate the support from everyone. We are also now sponsored by Coalesce. We're partnering with Coalesce Apparel and Design, Magic's newest apparel company. Both Ethan and I are supporting our Lords of Limited tees. I see some folks out in the audience rocking those tees as well. So if you want to join in and get your Lords of Limited t-shirt, we've got a gift code for you to get 10% off your next order at Coalesce Apparel, which pertains to anything on the website, not just Lords of Limited merchandise. That code is LOL. And again, we'll get you 10% off. So head on over to coalesceapparel.shop. 
pick up your Lords of Limited swag today. Yeah. All right. So let's dive right in. It's an episode of Lords of Limited, Ben. Like any other, we got a roundtable today? Absolutely. This is my latest draft on Arena here. This is post Ben Stark recording, and I sat down. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give Arena a second chance. <laughs> I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to pretend like the bots are real people, and so this is my my attempt to do that. So pack one, pick one. We've got some options here. Uh, first things in consideration: there's an agonizing siphon in the pack, three and a black for the sorcery, deals three damage to any target, and you gain three life. There's a leafkin druid, one and a green for the O3, tap to add a green. If you control four or more creatures, add green green instead. There's a season of growth, one and a green. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, scry one. And whenever you cast a spell that targets a creature you control, draw a card. There's also Moldervine Reclamation, three black green for the enchantment. Whenever a creature you control dies, you gain a life and draw a card. And a Vampire of the Dire Moon, single black for the 1-1, one, one, Death Touch, Lifelink. Yeah, we opened this up uh, like a half hour before we were recording, and I was like, oh, I'll have to take a look at the round table. And I opened up this pack, and I was like, wrong. <laughs> How do you not take Moldervine Reclamation here? The card is so nuts. Oh, man, it's gold. It's tough. As a pack one, pick one. I think Leafkin Druid leaves you a lot more flexible down the road. Yeah, but it's not so spicy. Not so spicy, but if I'm if I'm trying to draft for real, if I'm at the PT, I'm taking Leafkin Druid here 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, that's fair. And now is there, there's, again, you're talking about like, well, I'm trying to not think about the bots here, but it's so hard to see Season of Growth in this pack and not think, probably going to wheel, right? Probably going to wheel, yep. Yeah, so I think taking Leafkin Druid and then planning on wheeling Season of Growth sounds like a good plan here. Yep, that's what I did. Leafkin Druid, pack one, pick one. Moving on to pack one, pick two. See the following cards in contention. There's a murder, one black black for the instant, destroy target creature. There's blood for bones, three and a black for the sorcery as an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a creature, return a creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield, then return another creature card from your graveyard to your hand. That's really about it. Best green card in the pack is Gift of Paradise, two and a green for the enchant land. Whenever it ETBs, you gain three life and enchanted land can tap for two mana of any color. And there's really no cards of any other color that are pulling you in another direction. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm sort of feeling like you're passing up on the spice for, like, consistency. <laughs> uh, I would, I love Blood for Bones. I I mean, I think it's pretty close in power level to murder. Like, if what's murder? A B? B plus? Like a solid B. They're both, I'd say Blood for Bones is at least a B. Yeah, I think this is, a, this is a tough choice. Yeah. I, I, I sat there and tanked for a while. And in an arena, you can have as much time as you want. Yeah, it yeah. was a good it was a good two minutes. Yeah, I don't know. I think I would probably take Blood for Bones just because I don't want to win. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think I think either of these is defensible. I to the shock of no one landed on the more consistent murder, and so now we've got a Leaf Kindred and a murder in our pile. Moving on to pack one, pick three. This is a pretty weak pack. Yeah, cards in consideration. There's a Sleep Paralysis, three and a blue for the enchantment. Enchant creature when it ETBs, tap enchant a creature. Enchanted Creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. There's a Thicket Crasher as the only green card in the pack. Three and a green for the 4-3 Trample. Other elemental creatures you control have Trample. Best white card in the pack is probably Loyal Pegasus. Single white for the 2-1 Flyer and can't attack or block alone. If this were MTGO, I think a great option would be Noxious Grasp. One and a black for the instant. Destroy target creature or Planeswalker that's green or white and you gain a life. But unfortunately, we are on best of one arena, so that's not really in consideration here. That's all I really see standing out to me. Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's nothing good in black really to take. Thicket Crasher pairs nicely with Leafkin Druid, like ramping it out on turn three. That seems pretty reasonable to me to take. 
Yeah, super weak pack. That was what I landed on. It was close between that and sleep paralysis, but I'm so down on sleep paralysis that I just wanted to stay green. I agree with that. Moving on to pack one, pick four, another weak pack here. Not a lot of options. Again, another noxious grass that would be a great option, and I think probably the pick if you were on MTGO, picking up premium sideboard cards. You can also do best of three on Arena, you know. You could, yeah. yeah. I'm crunched on time these days, so I wanted, (laughs) wanted some best of one action. That's fair. There's an Apostle of Purifying Light, one and a white for the 2-1, pro-black, and you can pay two to exile target card from a graveyard. There's also a Scampering Scorcher, three and a red for the 1-1. When it ETBs, create two 1-1 red elemental creature tokens, and elemental creatures you control gain haste until end of turn. Keeps the, like, elemental dream alive. Again, like, not too shabby with Leaf Kindred, ramping it out on three. I also like, you know, you can take it early and then sort of... Not that you would not be prioritizing stuff like Goblin Smuggler or other like elemental synergies. Like it's really good with the uh, Lavakin Brawler. So I think taking it here and then maybe trying to get into green red elementals is a good plan. Yeah. And normally on Arena, I'm hoping to not start off in three different colors. But I think, you know, I was really trying to put myself in the mindset of this is an MTGO draft. And I think, you know, if this were MTGO, I'd be happy to pick up Scampering Scorcher here and keep trying to feel out what's open. So now, like, what else were you going to do? So I know you're like thinking about trying to apply like what Ben had talked about last week, but what else, is there a different route in this draft right now? Cause I'm not really seeing it. Like, yeah, it feels bad to be drafting the hard way quote unquote here, but I don't know what else you could have done so far. Yeah. I don't think there's a ton of options just because the noxious grasps have been the best black cards and you're not playing sideboards in best of one. So I don't think there's really another route yet. Yeah. So scampering torture was the pick there. Moving on to pack one, pick five, see the following cards as options. Best green card in the pack. There's a Feral Invocation, two and a green for the Enchantment Aura. Enchanted Creature gets plus two, plus two, and it has Flash. There's a Scuttlemutt, three mana for the two, two, taps to add a mana of any color, and Target Creature becomes the color of your choice until end of turn. That's its other ability. There's a Raise the Alarm, probably as the best card in the pack. It's one and a white. I know you don't think that. <laughs> There's one and a white for the instant. Create two, one, one, white Soldier Creature tokens. I think that's really about all I see here. I would say that I would think that prior to our episode about how to draft white. I'm, I'm on the raise the alarm plan solidly these days. I think it's just re- really important. Now, I think here I would be hesitant to get into the fourth color, uh, and I might just take Feral Invocation and like keep my fingers crossed that that season of growth is going to wheel out of the first pack. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that raise the alarm is probably the best card in this pack in a vacuum. Yeah, so I think that's this is the first time where I really felt like I was in a different decision on Arena versus MTGO. I think... If I were in trying to game the bots, I think I'd be on Feral Invocation, plan on Wheeling Season of Growth. But I was trying to have my Ben S. Chi going on here, and I was really trying to stay open and, and figure out what the lane was from the bots. And so I, I ended up on Raise the Alarm. Okay. Moving on to Pack 1, Pick 6. Feeling pretty good about the bots now. We get past another Raise the Alarm. There's also a Metropolis Sprite, one in a blue for the 1-2 Flyer. And you can pay a single blue to give it plus 1, minus 1 until end of turn. And best black card in the pack is probably Blight Beetle. One on a black for the 1-1 one, one pro green, and creatures your opponents control can't have plus one, plus one counters put on them. Yeah, I mean, you're, but you're not taking that in best of one. Like, you take Blade... Again, I think Blade Brand is like a thing where I'm like, oh, that's like something that will go well with the season of growth that we probably will. But yeah, you're just thrilled right now with your Ben S. Chi and the double raise the alarm. Right. Did end up, as this draft turns out, navigating into green-white tokens, except I didn't see any inspired charges from the bots. So Oof. I just have a couple inspiring captains, the 3-3 that pumps your team plus one, plus one on ETBs. Uh-huh. Currently 
2-0 and on Arena. And if we look, we did wheel that season of growth. So if we had tried to game the bots and plan on wheeling that season of growth, that would have paid off pretty hard for us, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's not hard to get stuff that goes with season of growth, you know, like Feral Invocation, Growth Cycle, uh, Blade Brand. Like you can pick up stuff even if you're green-white, you can get Moment of Heroisms. Like I don't think you need to... I feel like once you get it, you can pick up the stuff for it. It's not like you're going to feel, oh, I missed out on Feral Invocation. I don't think... I've never ended a draft and gone, oh, shucks, I missed out on that. Feral Invocation that I could have picked up. Although playing on Arena more, Feral Invocation is a pretty savage blowout when you get got by it. I, I do think it's a good card. It's going up for me a little bit in my pick order. That you just like don't need anything to make it good. It's just good. <laughs> I think it's just good. Yeah. And it, it makes it hard to block if you suspect your opponent has it. It's also got the like best of one effect that Ben was talking about last week where you're like, you don't get to then play around it in game two or game three. You just get got by it. Right. Like you, it's a common, so you can... You can play around it more than an uncommon or a rare, like you're not playing around a sweeper or whatever, but you can still play around Feral Invocation to an extent, but it still feels like you got to kind of make them have it sometimes. Yep. All right. So before we dive into these listener questions, I thought it'd be kind of cool since we're in Vegas to like review some stuff that is a crossover from poker and magic um, and things like keep in mind stuff we've talked about on the show before, but I do think these concepts are good. First one I want to talk about is like, this is a pretty wide ranging magic concept, but not being rotty. So like uh, self mill is bad because you mill your own bombs is something that a lot of people talk about. Uh, and I think that applies the like parallel to poker is when people are like, they fold, but they want to see what like, the, well, what's the next card going to be? And it's like, well, that doesn't really matter. And you think about like that top of the deck as being random in poker and that like what actually comes off doesn't really affect what the outcome was going to be, you know? And so if you think about the top of your deck being the bottom of your deck, when you self mill, I think that's a much better way to try and like wrap your head around like, oh man, if I had just, if I hadn't milled the top four with my gorging vulture, I would have drawn that card. That's not really the right way to think about it, you know? Right. You should just always be thinking about your library as random. Or there's, like, people that are maybe less familiar with that stuff. You know, sometimes they'll play a random blue mill card. Like, they'll think the the crab from Dominaria that mills <laughs> for is going to be good because you've got a chance to mill your opponent's bombs. But ultimately, that's just not worth a card. Or, or even going so far as a card like Dream Twist that just is a mill card, you know, playing that to try to mill your opponent's bombs. You know, some some people have that mentality as well. Yeah, thinking about both libraries as just being random cards rather than like, once you know the sequence, thinking about what you could have done based on that sequence is just the wrong way to think about it. Next up, I've got like how to like get a read on your opponent. And this is like a huge thing in poker is, you know, trying to get some some tell from your opponent or, you know, things that they're doing that might affect what your decisions are based on like their physical stuff, anything like that. I think that you can really put yourself in your opponent's shoes a lot more in magic, right? Like think about why your opponent is making this weird attack sometimes in limited, like why are they making this fishy attack? What would I be doing if I were them? What would what would, could be in my hand that would make me make that kind of attack or pass with a bunch of mana up and have five, four cards in your hand? And then you're like, okay, so what do they have? That must have something. They must have a plan with their mana. It's very unlikely that their hand is just like four lands at this point, you know? Um, so I think putting yourself in your opponent's shoes is something that we don't do a lot. And it's not really talked about a lot. And I think that's the way you get reads on your opponent of like, oh, what they do. And then think about if that story is consistent throughout the next few turns, right? If they're representing some sort of pump spell and then do something later on, a couple turns later, that doesn't track with that story, I think then that's important to go, okay, well, maybe they were bluffing. Maybe 
I thought they had that, but they must have then something else because if they had a pump spell, they would be doing X, Y, Z, you know? Right. When I watch really good people on Twitch that I think are better players than me, I think that's what they spend most of their time doing that I don't. Like Sasha, for example, on MTGO, when he doesn't stream much anymore, but when he streams as Ehe Dude on Twitch, he's always putting himself in his opponent's shoes and, okay, this only makes sense if they have this. And I don't spend my time doing that at all. I'm just talking to Twitch chat during the opponent's turn <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> so I think that's one of the, one of the big areas where I can really try to improve yeah as a player for sure it's hard yeah uh, and the last point i have on here is about like bluffing in general um but i think bluff attacking too I, I think bluffing in general is way overrated in magic and like people are always like oh shouldn't you be holding a land in your hand and like 90 percent of the time that's wrong like sometimes when you've got like looting effects or something or if you know your opponent has discard effects maybe you want to be holding lands but most of the time you just want to play stuff out because i mean you think about it for yourself do you ever like I'm never in a position where I go, oh, my opponent has one card in hand. That's going to change the things that I do. I'm now going to not cast my bomb this turn, or I'm not going to use my pump spell. Like it very rarely impacts your decisions. And so I think if it doesn't impact your decisions when your opponent is doing it, then again, do the reverse and think, well, then I probably shouldn't be holding lands. And it can be a detriment. You know, if you have any card draw, you can get got by like holding lands because then you cast some sort of card draw spell, draw a land and a spell but you can't play the land and have enough mana for the spell, but you would have been able to if you hadn't been holding lands. You get punished by that enough, and I think it like get, gets that out of your system. Yeah, I'm much more on the side of playing out my lands, especially if I have any sort of card draw in my deck. Yeah, We've also got mulligan percentages on here about playing lands and keeping hands and things like that. So, you know, we've talked about mana bases and keeping hands before, but the most important one and the one I get challenged most often about on Twitch is when you're on the draw and you keep a one-lander. And you've got about a 75% chance, you know, we're in Vegas talking odds to keep to hit that second lander on time. And you should take that most of the time. If you have any sort of a reasonable hand that can function on two mana, three mana, you should just expect to hit that land. And sometimes you're going to lose and you're going to hit that 25%. But more often than not, I think keeping when you've got a one lander on the draw is right. Yeah. When you can get 70% or higher percentages in magic and basically anything, I think you have to take it. Like there's so much variance in the game that when you can get that sort of consistency, you just have to be happy with it. And do you think that changes at all with the London Mulligan now? You know, I don't yet. London Mulligan has not influenced my mulliganing decisions so far in limited. Has it for you? No, I agree, but it just feels nicer. Oh, hundred percent. I'm much happier and I feel like I can function much better on six, five. I've had got, had to go down to four and like felt like, I at least had a chance to play a game of magic. Whereas before you mulligan to four with a scry, you're, you're dead. Yeah. You're not going to get there. Um, so, but I haven't had it be a different decision yet. All right. So we're going to dive into some Q and a stuff. We never do this. We've never done like a Q and a on the show before. This is exciting. I know we don't have anything prepared. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> Hi guys. My name is Nikolai known as Nikolai Bolas on the internet. And I wanted to ask you guys what inspired you to start making content. Uh, for me, it was just boredom and a lack of uh, a social outlet, honestly. So for me streaming on Twitch, you know, I lived, I just recently moved to uh, just South of Indianapolis, which has been awesome. But prior to that, I lived in a really small town in Southern Indiana and I would go home in the evenings and there weren't a lot of young professionals in the area. So for me, you know, I knew I was good at MTG and I was just thinking about, you know, what am I going to do to fill my time in the evenings? And I was drafting by myself and I thought, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I want to start streaming on Twitch. I think that'd be something I'd really enjoy. And so I did it and it was way better than I ever possibly imagined at first, you know, just with people watching my stream. I was shocked that there were people that wanted to watch me stream and then, you know, meeting Ethan and, you know, we just got so lucky starting 
Lords of Limited, it was just like, hey, you know, he said he wanted to do a podcast, but he didn't want to edit. And I was like, I'll edit. I don't know anything about it, but I was willing to learn. So I, you know, did a lot of research, learned how to edit. And we, did, I think we just got really lucky. But for me, the the impetus to start doing it was just uh, sort of a social outlet on the internet. Uh, for me, I mean, you know, my background is in performance. I got my degree in acting. That's like, I mean, I now I'm probably more content creator than actor at the moment. But uh, I, I think streaming in general is sort of like a real perfect like convergence of all of my interests and skills. So I think it's performative. I have uh, one of the jobs that I've had is as a like SAT, ACT prep tutor. And so I think I'm particularly good at like explaining my thought process or like explaining things so that people will understand because a lot of like one-on-one tutoring is like figuring out what works for that person, like explaining a concept to one person doesn't work then necessarily for another person. So you have to like figure out a way to dive in that way. And I'm obsessed with magic and I just like play it all all the time. And so I figure, well, if I'm going to play it, then I should be doing it on stream. And I didn't quite feel like there was, at least at the time, I mean, now there's like magic Twitch has exploded in the past two years. Um, I think we probably got in like just under the wire to get any sort of following. But I feel like streaming gave me an outlet for performance, for tutoring, for, uh, being able to like maybe monetize a hobby. So all of that was what got me started. Hi, I'm Georg. I'm German Gary York on the internet. So when you were talking to Ben S, he says he sometimes drives too hard, like drafts too hard, right? Uh-huh. So uh, I was thinking, are there some mistakes that maybe more experienced players do a lot more than less experienced players? For myself, I think, you know, as I get deeper and deeper into a draft format, I'm much more likely to do something that I know is wrong just because I start to get bored with the draft format. Like I'll, I'll try to draft. I remember, you know, my win rate was great in war and then I got a pack one, pick one Ashiok and I thought I'm going to draft the Ashiok deck. And then I got a second one and then it just slowly went off the rails. And that was like my first Oh three in the draft format about 30 or 40 drafts deep. So for myself, I think as an experienced drafter, I think just avoiding you know, that tendency to say, well, what's going to happen if I do this, if I'm really trying to keep my win rate up as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think limited content, it's much, much easier to talk about the draft portion than it is to talk about the gameplay portion. And I think a lot of the best players out there, I mean, watching Sigrist is just like a totally, I mean, he's someone who comes to mind because he's streaming a lot, but watching him stream, of course, watching Ben S stream, like, People who are just like fantastic players, like that comes so naturally to some of them. But I think other people who are, you know, really rock solid drafters, then don't maybe spend as much time trying to get better at the gameplay part, trying to get better at that. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I put myself in that same category. I mean, I miss, I miss lethal so much. I just like don't count up stuff. I think that's the biggest leak for me, but I don't necessarily think that's something that good players are doing, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we shouldn't be including yeah, ourselves in this question. Probably not, yeah. I think that tracking the game and like, you know, someone like Ryan, who's like always thinking like multiple turns ahead when they're playing, like he's very good at being like, okay, so my opponent will be dead in four turns and he works back from that. I think all of that stuff, like mapping out gameplay is something that people don't talk about enough. And so then I don't think people are improving at enough. Do you think you play around some cards too much, for example, what newer players don't do? No, I think newer players play around cards way more than they should. I, I think I think more often than not, you got to make people have it. Yeah, you're just... <laughs> I was, gonna, I was gonna say, I think that's a leak for me. I just have a sense of paranoia when yeah. I play Magic all the time. We, okay, so I don't know if people know this, but Ben is like 
notorious for being get for getting got by you know quench manatee force bite. So yes, yesterday we yesterday we drafted my cube and there's none of that. There's no days, no force of will. No force spike, no mana tithe. I took it all out, but there is spell pierce. <laughs> the first game of Ben's first match, he played against his brother who's here with us this weekend. And I just hear a cry from the other room. <laughs> and he got got by spell pierce, and Nick was like, that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> just been holding up one blue mana for three turns, and he got him. So. <clears throat> Hello, my name is Jennifer. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, what is your most favorite set to draft? And then what was your least favorite set to draft? I think my favorite of all times is Triple Cons. That was the first time I ever started playing. This was back before there were leagues, but I, that was the first time I ever started playing 8-4s. And I, for whatever reason, that format really clicked with me. And I was hardcore listening to LR during that time. Um, and I was winning a ton at the end of KTK. I think I've had probably like 80 or 100 packs to sell that I waited way too long to sell and <laughs> sold them for cents on the dollar. But uh, just the the amount of flexibility in that draft format, and there were so many different lanes that you could go down, so many different kinds of decks to draft, two color, three color, five color. If you were a good drafter, there was no way you were ever just going to train wreck your draft in Cons of Tarkir. There were so many outlets and avenues and different types of decks. As far as least favorite, I, I I don't have one, I don't think. I just love drafting. I mean, everybody talks about Avacyn Restore like, as being one of the worst of all time. I, I drafted Avacyn Restored happily. Like I just, <laughs> I just want to draft. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, my favorite is Dominaria right now. Um, you know, that just like, you could do so many shenanigans. There was a lot of value stuff, a lot of like cool build arounds. And that's what I like to do uh, in limited most is to like feel like I get rewarded for going, ah, like what is this, this one card? And then how do I build around that? How do I make cards like better? I always talk about like greater than the sum of their parts decks. I think those are like really strong and they're really rewarding to be able to go, I'm going to take this one card out of the pack and then this card's going to wheel. And when that happens, I feel like there's like, I don't know, I get like an endorphin rush or something like, yes, got him. Uh, least favorite, probably M19. <laughs> uh, I really did not like, M19. I mean, M20 did not really sit well with me either. I, maybe it's just like bad at corsets. I don't know. It's because I have no discipline to take murder over blood for bones. It's just you know, <laughs> I just don't have any discipline. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, uh, I'm Philip. I'm Philbert on the Discord. Nice. And uh, my question is, I played against LSV randomly in a side event two years ago here in Vegas, and he commented that it was his first game of Paper Magic in like ten months. And I was like dumbfounded by that. But then I started thinking about it. And when you're making content like part-time or full-time, you don't get to do a lot of paper magic. And sort of like how you guys were talking with Ben last week about how, um, you know, is like playing with the arena bots versus drafting with people, like the differences. To me, there's like a next level of like fun and enjoyment to um, drafting with people where you can kind of do an autopsy afterward and be like, oh, the person to my right started in blue, but moved to white and stuff like that. And I guess my question is, do you guys get to do any paper magic and do you miss it if you don't? I don't play paper magic almost ever. Um, you know, I do have a, an LGS in Pittsburgh that I sometimes go to, but I personally prefer it. You know, a few weeks ago, Sam Black tweeted about how like he felt like magic was a social thing and that content creation wasn't really for him. And I made a, a tweet as sort of like a response. And it got me thinking about my relationship to digital magic and content creation and how I feel the opposite. Like, I mean, it, it is such a social thing for me 
to be able to stream, to have the Discord, to have the podcast. Like, I mean, Ben is one of my best friends and we don't hang out together. Like we text during the week and then we talk once a week and record a show. And that is all very social for me. And so the like concept of paper magic being more social is sort of foreign to me. And the, the stress of like high level tournaments, like the GP or stuff is like, I don't know, does, does not sit well with my, my being. I'm like maybe too competitive or something. I just don't, it's not enjoyable for me. So for me, I like playing Paper Magic, but at the same time, whenever I go to like FNM, I'm like, I could have done three drafts in this time that it took to like play a few rounds, you know? Yeah, I mean, this is literally the second time Ethan and I have ever met in person, and it feels like we've been best friends for quite a long time. So, I mean, it's, I, I agree. I do feel like online magic is really social for me as well, but I, it has been nice. You know, I don't play Paper Magic often. I do think my gameplay dips when I play Paper Magic because I'm trying to track more stuff and <laughs> MTGO doesn't do my triggers for me. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, if you're playing high level paper events, I would definitely encourage people to practice in paper before they go if they play primarily online. But the other thing you brought up, it has been nice in our house drafts. You know, we've done two drafts so far. It was really nice to be able to say, hey, were you blue white to the person to my right? And they were like, no, I was green red. And I was like, Oh God, I'm, I'm in green too. That's no good. Um, so yeah, just that debunk and being able to talk to people as you play. I certainly think there's, there's something to that as well. And now that I'm living in a place where there is an LGS, as soon as marching man season's over, I do plan to start going to my LGS on, on Friday nights. I think I'm Dan, uh, go by Dan J. Sny on the discord just joined this morning. Um, question I have also asked on Twitter, which is how exactly do you splash in limited? What makes you want to splash? How do you enable a splash? For example, in the uh, Modern Rides and Sealed episode, you mentioned that someone splashed a future site on two islands. How do you even like conceptualize that this future site is good enough that I'm going to stretch my mana base? And then after you conceptualize that you want to do that, how do you actually do that? Yeah, so for folks at home who don't maybe know this card, Future Sight is uh, an enchantment that is two blue, blue, blue. So not something you generally consider as a splash card. So splashing is something that's near and dear to my heart. I love building. I think building mana bases is something I'm very good at. I think I'm good at like figuring out the cost-benefit analysis of that stuff. So first of all, when you are adding things that fix your mana, like Gift of Paradise, like uh, you know Spring Bloom Druid to an extent in Modern Horizons or Arkham's Astrolabe, Astrolabe a little less so because it replaces itself, but there's a cost to your deck when you're doing that because you're putting something in your deck that doesn't affect the board, right? Gift of Paradise gains you through life and then it's just sitting there and that's a card. A piece of cardboard that took up uh, either a slot in your opening hand or one of your draw steps. And so you have to then have something that's going to make up that loss for you. So if you've got card draw in blue, that can help to mitigate that. But ideally the card that you're going to be splashing for is going to make up that loss because not only does it have to make up for the cards that you're putting in your deck that help you cast it, but it also has to make up for the times where it's stuck in your hand, right? So it's got to be good enough for that. So then we're talking about like bombs, right? We're talking about stuff like Future Sight that is, you know, I I would maybe put that in, it's not quite a bomb because it doesn't like, you know, win the game, but it's bomb adjacent that like, if it sticks around, if you get enough turns with it on the battlefield, you're going to get enough value out of it that you're probably going to pull ahead so much on resources from your opponent. So I don't know, like having good card evaluation is, I think a way to start is to like know what makes a card worth that spot in your deck. And then the other thing is to know like how much you can impact your mana base. I mean, I think a general thing is like you want three ways to find a single source of mana. So Generally, when we talk about splashing, the thing is just going to cost like one. It's not going to be triple blue, you know? Um, so if you have like three to one and then beyond that, you can build past it for 
you know, four sources for two pips or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. There's no like Frank Karsten math out there yet, I think, about like splashing beyond one card. Now, talking about splashing future sight, that's a whole other ball game. Yeah, I think for future sight specifically in Modern Horizons, I would want, you know, if I only had two islands, I think I would want three Spring Bloom Druids. And then I think I would want three other ways at a bare minimum to get like that third source, like, you know, maybe the artifact that taps for one man of any color or a talisman that can tap for blue. And even that I think would be pretty sketchy. That would be stretching it quite a bit for a card of that, that power level. That's not something I personally think I would do, but like you said, it's cost benefit, right? Yeah. So you're trying to, I think, look at cards that are only B's or higher, maybe to splash, maybe a B minus if you're in a pinch and like the gap between that B minus card that you're going to splash and your next best playable is pretty large, but you also can't just go running around, you know, seven, seven, three for your three sources for your splash card. You've got to make sure you're still close to nine, eight for your base two colors. So I think just learning how to play with good mana bases and build good mana bases. And we've done an episode that if people want to go back and check out on building good mana bases, you can look through the Lords of Limited archives and, and search that episode up. Uh, I want to say one more thing is that there's a flip side where you end the draft with an ability to splash. And then you, so then you make, you're like, well, I have four free red sources, so I'll put in Goblin Smuggler or whatever. It's like, well, just because you can splash doesn't necessarily mean you should. So even if something is quote unquote free, what is the addition of that card doing for your deck? Like Goblin Smuggler is not a card I would want to splash even if I could because it's probably not adding enough for those times. There is going to be some times where you don't draw the red sources, where the tap dual lands are going to hurt your ability to curve out, etc. So I think there's also a flip side of thinking like, well, even though you can, does that card improve your deck enough to be worth it? I would add on to that too, the B, B level cards that are better in the late game. Like for example, Ancestral Blade is a B but that's not a card I'm going to be looking to splash because it's at its best on turn two. And you're much less likely to have your splash sources by turn two. You're thinking you're trying to draw those splash sources by turn six, turn seven. So the cards you want to be splashing are cards that perform better in the late game. Hi, uh, I'm Groovy Rasputin on Twitch. My name is Noah. Though. I was wondering, first of all, what did you play when you studied music? Uh, I have a, a really unusual instrumental story. I started piano when I was really little. Uh, about five years old because my oldest brother who's sitting back there in the, in the back, uh, he started taking piano lessons and I wanted to be cool like him. And then he quit after a year or two. And so I wanted to quit after a year or two, but my, my parents wouldn't let me quit. So they made me keep taking piano. And then I didn't join band in sixth grade because they said I didn't practice piano enough, which was a legitimate complaint at the time because I didn't like the piano very much. Uh, so I joined band in eighth grade as a percussionist, played percussion all the way through high school. And then my senior year of high school, uh, I knew I wanted to teach, so I, I learned to play clarinet. My girlfriend at the time played clarinet, and so I just borrowed her old horn. Um, and for whatever reason, I got really good really fast, and I made all-state band after I'd been playing for three or four months. And then that sort of got me thinking, well, maybe I could do this in college. So I auditioned everywhere on clarinet and percussion, and ultimately ended up doing clarinet and did a master's degree in clarinet performance. So I think of myself as a clarinetist, but I started as a percussionist all the way through. I'm going to just clip that sound bite of, I borrowed her old horn. That's what. That's just. It's a lot. It's a lot there, buddy. That's what you call an instrument. Any, any a horn is a generic term for any any uh -huh. instrument. Yeah, I, no, for sure. I understand. I understand. I don't think anyone else will. That's the other question. It's very generalized, but like, how do you? At least at the beginning of the format, how do you start to figure out what card you're seeing when is like, oh, this is open. This question for me is tough because every guest we've had on who is very good, talk about Ben, Ari, Andrew Cuneo, they're all like, yeah, I don't look at spoilers. And like, 
all of our like our crash course stuff, I think what we're sort of known for is like really diving into the spoiler, getting all those stats out. Like, and that really helps me figure out the format or at least have a baseline for the format. But I wonder if I'm just doing it all wrong. But beyond that, I think the start is having a solid pick order. I mean, I think even if you're not agreeing with what we think the top three commons in a color are and then what the top five commons overall are, I think you need to have that in your head, right? Because not only does that help you figure out what tiebreakers are. If you see like, well, I've got the second best green common and the best black common in the back. Well, what are you going to take? You're going to take the best black common. Um, so I, you know, when I have coaching sessions, more often than not, I see people who don't have those solid pick orders in their head. And they're just like, well, this is what I think, even though if I would disagree with them, I still say like, you just have to have that. So that's what I do at the start. And then you've got to change things. Like I remember specifically in Ravnica Allegiance, it took me like two or three drafts to realize, and this was before everyone was like, yes, Blade Juggler is the best common in the set. But you would see Blade Juggler like fifth pick. And then it took me like two drafts to realize that's that was my chance to get into black because I'd pass mm-hmm. it and then black would flow or like stuff would wheel and I'd go, okay, that is the time where I was supposed to switch. And so then you have to just adjust that for yourself. So then when the next time it happens, you go, yes, this is the signal. I haven't taken a black card yet, but I know now that Blade Juggler fifth pick is when I should get into that color. Yeah, I think there's two things there. I think having the pick order and then I think evaluating whether you're winning or losing based on drafting on that pick order. So, you know, if you're, you've got your best white commons and you find yourself getting into white, but then you find yourself continually losing, either white's really bad or you've got your white pick orders wrong. So I think being willing to self-evaluate after the draft and, you know, see if your pick orders worked and ended up with you ending up in a good deck, that I do a lot at the start of the format. How's it going? I'm Kevin, uh, gamer tag online is Whisk. So I haven't played Paper Magic in about 20 years. Um, Cheers to that. (laughs) Never played MTGO. So since Arena came out, I've been on a lot, drafting multiple times a day. This weekend, I'm planning on playing quite a bit here, drafting. What are the biggest things I should keep in mind, either through draft or even while playing, compared to online? I think the biggest thing is you're not going to be able to look at your picks in between packs. So you're really going to have to concentrate as you're drafting, thinking, okay, I have two green cards, I have three blue cards, I have one black card, I still probably have an option to pivot into black. And I'm just trying to keep your mana curve in your head as you go. Like even just doing the house drafts last night, I don't do it that often. And I was thinking, whoa, this is hard. I got to devote more mental energy to remembering what my picks are and what my options are because it's not all laid out in front of you as you draft. So I would say that would be the number one thing to watch out for. And then just playing, you know, you're going to have to know all your triggers. And that's something I struggle with too, playing in Paper Magic, is you're going to have to say trigger, 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 stack my triggers this way. So everything that those programs do for you, you're going to have to do for yourself. Yeah. And so like little reminders, you can put like a die on top of your library to like remind you to do stuff in your upkeep or whatever. Um, I think, you know, making any notes for yourself about stuff. I, I think just be, if you're, especially if you're doing like the side drafts, they're not as like in rules and aren't as enforced in those as they would be in the main event. So, you know, you, you probably will be playing, playing against friendly opponents. Um, but yeah, I think that's the number one thing is trying to exercise that muscle of remembering your picks. And I think that's just hard. That's just going to take practice because you're so used to being able to go just look at your curve immediately as you draft, you know, but good luck. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, hey, what's up? Um, my name's Parker. I'm a Viscerous Online. Nice. Um, questions for Ben. Pack one, pick one. Playing music, teaching music, drafting, or eating butter noodles? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a tough question until you said the fourth one. <laughs> Man. 
That's that's tough. I think for me, it's got to be between teaching music and playing music. I love MTG, but music's where my heart lies. Uh, I just recently played with the Owensboro Symphony Orchestra a couple weekends ago, and I hadn't subbed with a professional symphony for about a year or two prior to that. And it was just so nice playing with people that are playing in tune, that are professionals, and that really know what they're doing. So anytime I get a chance to play professionally, I, I love doing that. But I think I think the pack one pick one's got to be teaching for me. I mean, it's what I do. If I wanted to be a performer, I would have ground out the practice and the audition circuit harder than I did. I did, the, did that a lot in my master's degree, and it was awesome. But there's a lot of, you know, I didn't want to spend eight to 10 hours a day in a practice room for years until I won an audition. You know, I've been runner up four times. And when you win a spot, you win it for life. And I, I just thought, I don't, I don't want to do that. So I love teaching and seeing the light in a kid's eyes when they get something or they know they've played it really well and that I've helped them do that is pretty awesome. Thanks. Hi guys, I'm Matt. Uh, Also on Discord, Matty Boy Hoyle. So um, first off, thanks for the podcast. It makes my drive bearable. Yeah. Uh, So kind of on the poker theme, um, everyone's got the bad beat story in Magic. What's your guys' worst bad beat? Magic. Oh, I have this queued up right now. <laughs> so I don't remember what the card name is, but I was at a pre-release at my LGS and I was playing against this kid that was really young, like probably 11 or 12 and like pretty obvious that they weren't the best magic player on the planet. And they had, there was this card that if you started with it in your opening hand, you started at like 26 or 27 life, and then you could cast it to gain 20 lives. Anybody remember the name of that card? Providence. 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 Yeah. So it came down to like, and the kid was playing so slow and I was really nice. I never asked him to play faster. And so we're in extra turns and I've got it lined up to where I'm going to kill him on the fifth turn. And he had drawn Providence over the course of the game and cast Providence on the fourth turn of extra turns so that I didn't have lethal for him. And it was so savage, <laughs> so savage. Had that one locked and loaded. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to take a second to just get on a soapbox because I'm going to just back off of answering this question because I think I find bad beat stories so insufferable. (laughs) Uh, Just because, like, everyone loses. And your loss to variance is no different than my loss to variance. And I understand people are seeking sympathy. I am not, like, so dead inside that I don't understand that that's (laughs) what is happening there. But I do think that spending any amount of mental energy remembering that (laughs) having that so queued up how many years ago was that oh at least six or seven (laughs) (laughs) that is a leak in your game and and in life i think so i i would encourage folks to let that stuff go and and recognize when you have that impulse to tell that bad beat story like think about what you're objective is like what am i seeking in this interaction and can i get that in a, maybe a different way of not like because they're ultimately boring it's it's like oh you got you mulliganed uh, to four yeah, i've never done that like yeah I, we've all done it it's it, it's not unique it's not a unique experience so maybe think about and we i think one of our early episodes of making your own luck episode is a place where we talk about a lot of those things where well then what did what did you do to get yourself there did maybe you build a bad mana base did maybe you not have enough lands maybe you had too many lands in your deck like if it's a bad beat story, like, was there anything you did in that game that could have gone differently so that they didn't top deck that card? Like, could you have killed them a turn sooner? I don't know. All that stuff, I think generally focusing on just like, oh, I got so unlucky is just so negative EV to use a Vegas term. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sam. Totally casual magic player. Um, I was uh, wondering um, who 
got you into magic? Who was your sort of first person who brought magic to you? Uh, mine's really easy. I have three brothers and, you know, one of them's here today, came to Vegas with me. We all got magic cards around the same time and our parents were pretty awesome about like helping us, you know, get cards. I remember we started playing right around the end of revised and the beginning of fourth edition. And I remember our parents driving us to Evansville, which was an hour away and like going hunting at different stores for like stores that still had revised starter decks in stock or revised boosters in stock to try to draft those, to try to get, you know, dual lands that were from revised. So a lot of parent support and, you know, the ability to, you know, even now when we get together, sometimes we'll do sealed or we'll do a four person draft. So my brother's far and away. I got me into MTG. Yeah, same. Uh, I mean, Ben and I are like, uh, almost exactly the same age. We're born like a month apart. And I think I have two older brothers who are like six and a half years older than me. Um, and so, yeah, back in like fourth edition ice age time, like that's when I started playing magic, having like, you know, knowing the rules, but like the old turn one lightning bolt, like 20 lands, 20 spells, <laughs> 20 creatures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, so I, I played, you know, up until maybe invasion block and then stopped. And then the, my same older brother got me back into drafting i mean he the, the my obsession is thanks to him being like when i visited him in seattle he was like oh i'll have some friends over and we're gonna draft oh what's that and so like we drafted world wake and that was my first experience and i was totally hooked awesome thank you yeah hi i'm mossy beard on twitch my question for you guys is how much content on a weekly basis do you consume like you mentioned listening to a lot earlier like do you listen to just also them or like other other podcasts like articles youtube videos anything else there was a point in my life where I religiously read every single article on Channel Fireball and watched every single draft video that was posted on Channel Fireball. That has gone out the wayside as I started making my own content, so I don't consume as much of other people's content, but I still listen to podcasts religiously. My top four right now, uh, Magic the Amateur. No, it's not Magic the Amateur anymore. Good luck, high five. Pro Points is awesome, and anytime Pro Points talks about limited, I love Pro Points. The Game Podcast, which is now Arena Deckless Podcast uh, with Jerry Thompson is awesome. And I still faithfully listen to LR every week. So those four podcasts are my go-to. And then every once in a while, if I have a big trip, I'll find other podcasts to listen to that are related to MTG. Yeah, I don't know how to like put a number on like hours or like what content I consume. And I think it's a similar story to you, Ben. Like I before I started making my own content, yeah, I was on CFB all the time. I remember, do you remember MTGO Academy? Does anyone I do, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. where like Marshall first was posting draft videos. Uh, Simon Gertzen had draft videos up there. That site was awesome. Um, there was like draftmagic.com back in the day. Like I was consuming a lot of videos and of course listening to LR. I've been listening to them since John Laux was the host. Um, and now I think, you know, I've got, I try and check in on a lot of streams, especially folks that I like really respect and learn from, uh, like Sigrist and Ben S. I try and like support my own community as much as I can. Folks like Mr. Mossy Beard here, um, who put out good content, Strix Familiar, who's here as well. Uh, Falcane, though he's not streaming so much anymore. So I, you know, try and support those people, uh, as much as I can, but I'm not reading as much content. It's like, I want videos and podcasts. And I do the same podcast as Ben. LR, Arena Deck Lists, and Pro Points are top of my list. I don't miss those every week. And like a corollary to that is like, do you think consuming too much magic could be like, too much magic content could be a bad thing? Like too many cooks kind of thing? You know, getting too many opinions? No or, such or, thing for me. Is yeah. it just every... Okay, cool. And I think I will say as a content creator, I think it's very important to consume as much content as you can. I think you need to know like what's out there so that you're not, I mean, one of the reasons I still listen to limited resources every week is like, I want to make sure we're not doing the same thing they are. Like I recognize that 
probably we have almost an entirely overlapping audience. I imagine that most people who listen to our show also listen to their show. So uh, if they're going to do X, Y, Z on one week, then we're going to be like, well, we can't do that on Friday. You know, like sometimes they're, they have the, like, they've now started incorporating the like full draft episodes. So we're definitely not going to do that the same week that they do it. You know, I think you need to be up on what other folks are doing and especially something that we're so concerned with on the show is meta game shifts in limited. And I'm not going to get that only from talking to Ben. I'm going to need to like, see what other people are doing. What are other folks like Detsy is someone who like drafts totally different than I do, but he's so successful. And so I want to be able to check in on his stream sometime and see what he's doing. You know? Yeah. Right. I think the more you consume, the broader your horizons are and the more up to date your own content is going to be awesome. Thanks guys. Yeah. Hi, I'm Craig. Some might know me as Falcane. Uh, I have, in my opinion, notoriously bad card evaluation skills. And so my question is at the beginning of a format, how do you evaluate one card in relation to the other 200 plus cards in the format to determine, you know, what are the good commons and why a certain common isn't good when mm -hmm. it might appear or have been in another format, a good card. I think a good example for this, for me, is something that I got very wrong was raise the alarm in M20. Um, and I like really took me month plus into the format. I don't know when that, when our white episode was in relation to the start of the format, but it really took me a long time to figure out why that card was so good for white in this format. And it's because it just supports all the other things, inspired charge, inspiring captain, ancestral blade, like Griffin protector, even like synergizes with that, that figuring out how that card works with all the other cards was really hard for me to wrap my head around. But I think that's what you have to do is look at, well, what does it do to the other cards? And I know it's a really hard thing to do. And a lot of that comes from not only your own evaluations, but what's really important is watching what your opponents are doing. And so when you see like, oh yeah, I just got blown out by blocking this Griffin and they just cast raise the alarm. And so that's a one for zero. They just get to play raise the alarm, kill my creature in combat, and I get to say nothing about it. And so I think being aware of those events is what's going to make you figure that out more. But I, you know, it's, it just takes time and it takes being able to like pick up on that stuff, which isn't easy. It's not, it's not an easy thing. There's not like a one thing to be, to be able to say like, well, just do this and you'll be able to evaluate cards better or know why shock is good in this format, but it was garbage in this other format, you know? I think there's several things going on there. I think, you know, Quadrant Theory from LR is like the best, most basic tool to help with card evaluation skills. So if you haven't listened to the Quadrant Theory episode of LR, would strongly encourage you to do that. That was my very first episode of LR and it sort of blew my mind and changed my world. Um, so that, and I think one of the things we had Ben S on last week that I'm going to really try to put into practice for myself was, you know, he was talking about rather than pick orders being static, thinking about it in the context of all the other picks you've made, like shock versus Chandra's outrage. Sometimes you're going to want the shock depending on what your deck wants, or sometimes you're going to need Chandra's outrage to kill a bigger creature. And I think you can also extrapolate to that, to the format as well, which is what we're trying to do when we get so much data for the crash course is we're trying to be able to predict, okay, this card is going to be good in this format because creatures are small or because there's a lot of one toughness creatures or whatever, whatever, whatever. So th those sorts of things. Cool. So we've got a few questions here from that were sent to us on Discord or on Twitter. The first one is from Sander Kirstens. And the question is, what strives you to invest so heavily in a draft while not applying your knowledge in the competitive scene? Are you guys aspiring as a career as a magic pro? And for me, the answer is not at all. I, I'm, I'm doing content creation and drafting a ton because I'm horrifically addicted to it. And I love competing, whether I win or lose. I just want to compete as much as possible. And MTG is just one outlet. But whatever I'm doing, I love competing. 
I love solving the puzzles of new draft formats. And I would, you know, as far as being a pro Magic player, I do have this idle dream in my head that I would like to play on the PT like once exactly, you know, qualifying by spiking a GP or maybe doing an MTGO thing where I top eight one of the sealed things and win a draft. But I have no no plan to ever want to be grinding on the circuit to try to qualify for every PT or Mythic Championship. I just think it would be cool to do once. Yeah, I mean, I have aspirations to be on coverage for Mythic Championship. I've been lucky to get to do these events every week on uh, twitch.tv slash fandom. So I get to exercise some coverage muscles there. But other than that, no, I'm like the, the, the stress of that, first of all, would not sit well with me. But I, I just like have no interest and I just so much enjoy creating content like doing the podcast getting to stream writing articles all that stuff is so fun and uh you know I I thought about this like a couple weeks ago I was talking to a friend of mine and it was like would being you know on the mythic championship circuit or like having a top eight to one of our names for a GP or a day two in a MC or something like be better for the show probably but I don't know how much that would like we're we're just a couple of schlubs, you know. We're just Agreed. like two random dudes who are, have a podcast that a bunch of fine folks listen to. So I, I don't know if that would even really like add a lot for us. And that would be the only reason for me to want to do it, you know. Right. I don't think that's super on brand for us. So I don't. I think it would help. I mean, it certainly couldn't hurt, but right. I, I don't think it would, you know, make us have a thousand more downloads the next week or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. We got another great question here from Nomad MTG, which is, how do you think male Magic players can increase the number of women playing the game? I think that's a great question. I think that's something you and I strive to do quite a bit in our streams, you know, making sure when you're streaming as a content creator to use gender neutral terms. I think just trying to create a welcoming environment in your stream in general, or if you're, you know, an LGS person trying to create a welcoming environment in your LGS. I think if you see people that are just being, you know, there's a lot of toxic male behavior in the MTG world still a little bit. So if you see that stuff going on, be willing to stand up and say, hey, I'd I'd appreciate you not doing that. You know, that's not going to make this a welcoming place. So just trying to make sure you're standing up for what you believe in and creating a a really positive, welcoming environment that everyone's welcoming. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I just think like, it's not hard to be welcoming. It feels like it's much harder to be rude and like, uh, closed off to uh, accepting other people for who they are. And I don't think that takes a lot of effort on your part. I think it takes like some mental switch, maybe sometimes. But I, I just think that like, you've got to have zero tolerance for any kind of negative behavior, non-inclusive behavior, and really be outspoken about that. And I would encourage folks to do that. You know, that one out of 10 person really ruins it for the rest of us. So just if you see something, say something, step up, be a a good supporter in your community. Geraint Morgan wants to know what do you think the next generation of limited podcasts should be doing to add value beyond what you guys do? And first of all, I want to say I think we're the next generation of limited podcasts. <laughs> we'll have Lords of Limited Next Gen like Star Trek. We'll just yeah. keep going and going and going. <laughs> yeah. But I do think there's a lot of room in limited content to explore in the area of sealed, and we probably will not be doing that exploration. Uh, I think so. There, I think there is room in the limited podcast world for more sealed content for sure. Um, and I think a pro point style podcast that's exclusively focused on limited would also be really cool. I would, I would die to hear, you know, three pros talk the way about a draft format, the way those guys talk about standard. And anytime they do talk about limited, those are some of my favorite episodes of podcasts that I've ever listened to. I wish to God that Sam Black wasn't a pro so he could talk about 
his weird niche draft strategies that he does when a format is over. You know, like learning about what he was doing for Modern Horizons after the MCQ, just like or after the Mythic Championship, blew my mind. I didn't know that deck existed at all. And so seeing what he was doing was fascinating to me. And he always has really unique approaches to limited and i would love super deep stuff but i already i feel like that i'm just like i want narrower and narrower content that's just for addicts like me you know <laughs> which is like probably not sustainable already you and i have a pretty like folk laser focused view on limited but i do think there's a lot of room out there for uh stuff i think especially you know we're trying to incorporate talking about arena drafts and i do think there's a pretty big difference between arena and paper drafting and mtgo and i think there's a lot of room of, for exploration on that especially as there are bot updates like being able to go okay well now this week this is what i'm seeing happening and you and i don't draft nearly enough on arena to maybe get that sense but there are folks out there who could next question p for pizza wants to know what is your current leak in draft or gameplay that you're working to improve and for me, the honest answer to that is nothing really, because I'm pretty happy with where I'm at <laughs> drafting and gameplay wise. I do think I'm a pretty darn good drafter and I feel very comfortable bobbing and weaving and I feel comfortable with my card evaluation skills. If I were really trying to get my win percentage up, I would want to tighten up my gameplay, but I'm, I just don't have the mindset that I'm trying to do that because I much more prefer streaming and talking to Twitch chat. So if I'm going to take a 5% win rate hit to be able to talk to Twitch chat and be an entertaining streamer, I'm going to do that 10 out of 10 times. But just like really, if I wanted to get my win percentage up, planning through my turn before I did things, thinking through the entire turn, taking a more long-term view of the entire term, like like sequencing, I think is a number one leak of mine, just snap playing a land or something and not thinking through why, or maybe I'd want to wait or drawing cards before I start taking actions, that, that sort of thing. I have three things here. One and two are things that I wrote about in an article I did at the beginning of the year about my limited resolutions. And I am unfortunately not still, still working on them. I haven't quite like checked them off. The first is not missing lethal. Um, I just like, there are a lot of times where I don't quite go, oh, this, I could have done 12 damage here, but instead I did 10 and now I have to wait another turn. Um, the second is tilt. Um, I really need to like, I just am so competitive. And so losing sucks. Losing on stream sucks even more. And it's just something that I need to like be able to work through more. Um, I don't know how to do that, but it's something I'm aware of. And the third thing for me is figuring out when it's right to do instance on your turn, in your opponent's upkeep, in their draw step, in the beginning of combat, after a declare attackers, after declare blockers. There's like some of those things that I'm always like, well, it doesn't matter, so I'll just do it now. But then sometimes in Twitch chat points this out to me is when it's like, oh, you should have done it here because X, Y, Z. And I go, oh yeah, 90% of the time I just don't think about that because I'm just like, well, I'll just do it now. They're tapped out or whatever. Or I should wait until they declare attackers or whatever. I, I don't actually think about that in a strategic way enough. One more here. Uh... This comes from Simon Hun, and the question is, what are some fundamental concepts that make you a better limited player as opposed to drafter? And I think number one, we've talked about this one some today, is just card evaluation skills and quadrant theory. But a thing we're spinning an idea around on doing an episode about potentially, and I think we'd probably need to reach out to Marshall and LR to see if he was up for us doing this, but mm -hmm. about when to adjust quadrant theory or when to deviate from quadrant theory. Because if you really just draft specifically on quadrant theory, you end up with a mid-rangey deck with a lot of really good cards. And Quadrant 3 doesn't necessarily apply to 
synergy sets so much. Like, so I think quadrant theory breaks down when you're in a high synergy set. And I think when we had Ryan on just talking about drafting aggro and the philosophy of fire. And I do think quadrant theory breaks down some when you're really truly trying to draft an aggro deck. So I think there's a lot of stuff to explore there in how to adjust quadrant theory or when to abandon quadrant theory for drafting high synergy sets and when you're trying to draft aggro sets. But that's that he just said as opposed to drafting. But I do think, you know, the number one skill would be card evaluation to make you a better limited player. Uh, I think if we're talking about like what I do as a player versus as a drafter that I think I'm, I'm better at than most. And I think that's something I talked about earlier in the episode, which is like trying to put myself in my opponent's shoes. Um, I, it's something I can definitely improve on, but I think that I'm very good. And this is a, just because of the being a poker player and having that concept be so important is to go like, so you've done this thing. Let me put myself in your shoes and think, why would I do that if I were you? Uh, and I think you got to do that more often because it's just going to help you be more in tune with what's happening on the other side of the battlefield rather than only worrying about your own narrative in the game. I think you got to think of it as a dialogue. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. We've got some sweet new outro music that's queued up. Probably not going to be on the episode this week, but coming to you shortly in the next few weeks. We've got a little reggae version of the outro music that, <laughs> that we're going to test out. We also uh, have been granted some sweet product by Cardsphere this week. Um, so Cardsphere is a uh, paper card trading website, and they have a fantastic draft simulator. If you haven't checked it out, would highly encourage you to do that. Um, you can just go to Cardsphere.com and uh, check that out. And they've gifted us some products, so it's sort of Oprah style after the episode. Some folks have a booster pack under their seat. And so if you have a booster pack under your seat... You're going to get to hop in a queue with me and Ben after this, if you would like. And if not, if you pass those packs on to somebody near you so that they could draft with us as well, that would be awesome. All right. If you folks want to check us out on Twitch and Twitter, you can do so. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter. And you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for coming. And we will catch you next week for a much less exciting episode of Lords of Women. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you later. Give us a second. Just edit out the pause when you do the answer. No, we'll just we'll leave this in. This is what the people want to hear. (laughs) Dead air.